This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Bravo. I'm here with my friend, uh, Mayor Schiller in a program that I've titled Mayor Enichachomim. Those of you that were listening last week remember that we spoke about the intractable situation in Rameyer's eyes about the Gaza war. And I was talking to Rameyer off pod yesterday. And as, as much as our hearts and our minds, our emotions and feelings and, 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 and perhaps, you know, our anger and frustration and are about what is going to be the next step, what is going to happen. I felt that as a responsible podcaster, I wanted to be able to present something that is, first of all, perhaps a sort of an oasis, a balm, something away from the talking heads and the different opinions, and also something which I think can be something we can turn to that isn't necessarily a creature of a specific time period, a specific time of crisis. And therefore, we're going to turn back to the part two of the origin story of Mayor Schiller. Last time, uh, we had taken uh, you, Rav Mayor, from, I guess, from your cradle almost to the point uh, that uh, your family had moved to Queens. And something precipitated a move from Queens, which was a, a step up in a way, Brooklyn, in terms of size and space, to the real vistas and plains of Rockland County. So wh- why did your family move up to Rockland County? Uh, what was going on in that 1960, 1964? It was simply the uh, the impulse to move up uh, economically, socially. You live in an apartment to a certain point in life, and then you move to a house. So uh, my stepfather and mother looked around for a house, and they found one in Rockland County. I believe it uh, cost them uh, $27,000 at the time. Which was a big amount of cash, right? That's, certainly was. Certainly yeah, was. right. I, I know you, you mentioned your step, your half-brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was just you and your brother and your parents uh, yes. you're staying in a house. So it must have been uh, unshackling you. It must have been, in a way, a, a great sense of freedom moving into that home. Except that I had, as a child seen part of my identity as being a Brooklyn, Queens, New York City boy. So I wondered how I would recreate my identity as a member of uh, Suburbanville. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a bit unsettling going uh, from a community which was all urban Jewish in Regal Park to going to this Rockland County where there were many, many non-Jews. Uh, Kakiat Junior High School, which I entered in, uh, seventh grade of 1963, Kakiat Junior High was probably 60% non-Jewish at that time. So that was a, it was a new experience. Right. A lot different than the way you described, uh, Horace Harding School, which was, although not, there weren't religious Jews there, but the, the ethnic aspect of the school was, was clearly Jewish. Plus, plus don't neglect the fact that in, in Brooklyn and Queens, you could go outside, go downstairs in your apartment house and have friends to play with. This was not the case in Rockland County, where you were very much geographically isolated 
So that also was a new social experience. And one thing that, that you mentioned to me was that although there were less Jews at school, but there was a certain type of Jew that started to populate the landscape there. And it was something that you didn't see much in Regal Park. And it was something that sort of caught your eyes. And that, of course, was was the Orthodox Jews who had, I guess, presently understood that that they couldn't stay, you know, locked down in Manhattan and Brooklyn and those other enclaves. There, there was an idea that for Yiddishkeit to sprout, uh, they needed more spaces to build bigger schools, bigger yeshivas. And I don't know who were the you know, who were the founders, who were the the people who had that idea, but you saw some of those uh, original Orthodox, clearly Orthodox teachers and, and, and people out there. When you speak of founders, I think it's very important to note Reb Shagafayevamandelovich, who really was, in a sense, the founder when he started Beis Medeshelian in the early 1940s. And he, in fact, actually said, the Hoyacha binyunim fashtelta himalin, that tall buildings of the city obscures the heavens from our vision. And um, he felt that the suburban setting was a better place to uh, be Megadal Dodas, to raise future generations in terms of Yiddishkeit. So the founding of Beis Medeshelian in the 1940s was the seminal event that mm-hmm. led to the creation of Orthodox Muncie. It's interesting that it didn't actually take off in this sort of meteoric pace. Throughout the 50s, it was still uh, still getting there, right? You, you, you don't have like, a big yeshiv other than Bismedish Elia. You don't, you don't have any, right? It's not like you have streets lined with Jews everywhere. It took a while for that to happen. Sure. The, the Yeshivism Valley is also founded in the early 50s. Um, the Hebrew Institute of Rockland County, which was the Ma North Dock School, is also born in the 1950s, but these are all fairly modest, uh, modest institutions. Reb Shia Schiff, who was one of the founders of Beshraga and a son-in-law of Reb Shaga Fivel, he used to always say that, uh, when he was younger, he wouldn't see a car in front of his house for a good 10, 15 minutes. There were no cars going down Maple Avenue. He said today he can't cross Maple Avenue without waiting 15 minutes for the traffic to pass and give him a slight entree there. So that's the difference between uh, 1940s, 1950s. I remember we would walk from uh, Beshraga, which I learned uh, in the mid-60s, to Visionitz and Friday night to the Tisch, and you did not encounter a nefesh on the way. You were there, and you noticed these these Orthodox people, and 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 how did how was it that you uh, that it tweaked your interest? Was it just who were these people and what are they about? Well, I was always a bit unsettled about what it meant to be a Jew, even in Regal Park. I recall sitting with a World Book Encyclopedia and studying the article on Judaism, which described the three strains or streams of Judaism. And I recall thinking, what does all this have to do with me? But it didn't uh, It didn't come to the forefront of my mind. But moving to Rockland County and seeing all these people and being bombarded on the other side by my father and my uncle, who were uh, resolute anti-religion in their worldviews. I remember my Uncle Ben gave me a gift of Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian, in the early days of my seventh grade. So they were virulently anti-religion. And I had to process what that meant and sort of the softer uh, version of religion that my stepfather and mother had. So again, I was able to put aside this question, but coming to Rockland County 
and seeing these people walking on the streets of Route 306 and Maple Avenue, the then center of Muncie, got me to thinking, what has this to do with me? So I debated it and discussed it with my classmates in seventh grade in Kakiat Junior High. And in the spring of seventh grade, uh, 1964, uh, I decided, along with two of them, to become Orthodox Jews for a month as an experiment to undergo what it actually meant to be practicing Orthodox. Uh, how did your mom and your stepdad react to, uh, you know, like, what's going on over here? I mean, he wants to be Orthodox? What does that mean? He's not going to turn on his, his transistor radio on Shabbos? Well, what, what did that mean, being Orthodox for a month? Right. It meant that my mother bought kosher food for me, and it meant that college football was out. It meant that going to West Point for Army football and my father was out. And um, it meant no Cousin Brucey on Friday night from 10 till 12 on WABC. So there were some changes. And my parents, since it wasn't absolutely threatening at that point, uh, they kind of went along with it. Had, had they planned some sort of... Uh bar mitzvah celebration for you? Oh, yes, yes. That's an important point. I was to become bar mitzvah in the Spring Valley Jewish Community Center, the conservative temple, in June of uh, 1964. And at that point, I was already on the cusp of becoming Orthodox. So uh, that was the last time I ever rode in a car on Shabbos, uh, when it was not mutter, perhaps, to do so. And um, so, so in other words, I think what you're saying is you, you, this month, experiment got into your kishkas. In oh, other yes. words, when, when the month was over, I, I was in because during that month is the fateful walk to New Square. So uh, I, I think most of our listeners are aware that this idea that a Fraga Fievel had of making Rockland County a, you know, a, a shtetl for the New York area, the Skarebbe and the Skarechsidim had, I guess, even in an extreme fashion, to have a yishuv that would be completely separate and allow really to replicate some of the glory that was in Europe uh, to happen there. And the, the, the property was purchased actually 1954. The uh, the Semach David Development Corporation purchased the Hahn Brothers Farm in 1954, but it was not until the winter of 56 going into 57 that the first four families moved out. What encouraged you to go too into this completely foreign element? I, I told my uh, co-experimenters that it was not sufficient just to study and practice orthodoxy. We had to actually visit the communities and see what the people were like, because you have to see how the thing is implemented in reality. So uh, one Sunday afternoon at the conclusion of Sunday morning Hebrew school, at the Spring Valley Jewish Community Center, which is now the Puppet Girls School in Spring Valley, we decided to walk to New Square. One of us was uh, not there that day, so it was just me and one friend. We walked down Route 45, which was largely not populated then, till we got to New Square, uh, Washington Avenue. We walked down Washington Avenue. Incidentally, only two streets, two and a half streets in Square were paved at that point, just uh, Washington, the Rebbe Street of Jefferson, and Truman, it was half, half uh, paved at that time. The rest of it was all just dirt roads. But we walked down the street and we didn't see anybody, no human being, the entire way from Washington Avenue to the shul, no cars going by, no human beings. It's just unthinkable today. Well, we got to the shul and we opened the door of the shul and we heard chanting. So my friend got scared 
And he said, they're praying, Let, let's go home, let's go home. We, we were, you know, tentative as it was. They're praying, let's go home. Of course, this is one o'clock in the afternoon, so they weren't really praying. But in retrospect, it was the kolel, in the, in, which in those days learned in the shul, but we didn't know that. So we turned to leave. And just as we, we were leaving, Reb Shaya Unga, who is the Gabbai of the Reb Zchan the Hunting Square Rebbe, uh, he came. He was coming to shul to pick up the Reb Zchan and escort him home. He would stay in shul two, three hours after davening and learn in the shul in his room. So Reb Shaya came to pick up the Reb Zchan So he approached us. He said, oh, boys, welcome. What are, you, what are you doing here? Very friendly welcome. And we told him we're conducting an experiment to, with Wafdak Judaism for a month. And um, he said, really, well, there is somebody in the synagogue right now who became Orthodox two years ago, and he's actually a, a movie star. Would you like to meet him? And this was, of course, uh, Stephen Hill of Mission Impossible, Law and Order fame. And he took us into the shul to Rishlema Hill, was uh, standing there with uh, Talas and a band of Tom Trillin, and he was reciting Tehillim. This is one in the afternoon. I guess he had, he had lingered after the Rebbe's minion. And we began to speak to him. And some of the Kodalian Yingalite surrounded us. These were, of course, today's Zaydas and Elta Zaydas. They surrounded us. And while we were talking, the Rebbe's Chanavracha came out of his room on the side. And, of course, Shai immediately ran to escort him. And Shlomo Hill turned to us and said, that's the Rebbe. He's a very holy man. It made a deep impression on me. And the next day in public school, the class gathered around in Mr. Williams' English room, first period of the day, and asked us, uh, what was it like? And I began to relate the story. And when I got to the point where I said the Rebbe came out of his room and went up to kiss the curtain in front of the ark, and one of the girls said, what did he look like? What did the Rebbe look like? And my friend, uh, Paul Pakchar, said, what did he look like? Let me tell you. He looked like Moses coming down from the mountain. That's what he looked like. I, in a sense, that's really what uh, what he did look like to me and to many others. You know, many Yidin who came to America, for the first time they saw the Rebbe's Chanavracha, they describe it as an uh, electrifying experience. Many Hasidish Yidin from other Hasidish described it that way. I think people need to know that, you know, unlike the sort of dramatic and imposing aspect that you sometimes get from uh, Rebbe's at that period in the United States, Square Rebbe was, was very much a, uh, much more Nechba Lakeven, right? He was someone yes. who, uh, uh, was quieter, was, was not a, it was not a Dabran. He didn't uh, speak. It's not like a, a whirlwind. It was the, the modest tread of a saint. It was really the uh, aspect of, of, of sweetness and beauty and love. I guess more right, than it right. was uh, like this powerful laser coming from his from from his eyes. Very, very much so. Very much so. There was no uh, no public speaking. Uh, the only public events were the Titian. Throughout the years, there were dozens, maybe hundreds of times when the extent of his idea satira was noted in the natural flow of life, but it was never a public uh, a public affair. Um, the first few years of the yeshiva. There was a bechina at which he was present, but even that ended at a certain point. There was a a desire to maintain a certain uh, behaltenkeit, a certain introspective privacy, which uh, would be unique in any era, but certainly unique then. 
you describe yourself at you know, this was at the end of seventh grade and this this moment that was so transformative. But you went back to your school. So I mean Craig Schiller was not the same. And and right. and and did you know that? Did you know that this that like you say, this this experiment was now going to morph into permanence and that somehow, you know, Scavere would somehow be the beacon that would continuously call out to you? I kept the drama going till the end of the month because the class was very interested as to whether I was going to remain in or opt back to rejoin their world. So I kept the drama going, but for myself, I knew it was, uh, it was over. I was, I was in. And as far as Square went, so that's when I began to read extensively about Hasidim and Hasidus and, uh, I read Buber's Tales of the Hasidim and uh, the Romance of Hasidim by Mencken and uh, Newman, the Reform Rabbis. I forget the name of the book, but uh, I read extensively about Hasidim and Hasidus from that point on because I sort of sensed that I wanted to be in this. It wasn't clear to me how that was going to happen, but it was fairly clear to me I wanted to be in this thing. And certain the fact that Shlomo Hill had done it to a large degree was a motivation. Let's talk about two things before we move on. First is, you know, you mentioned Buber, who, of course, the, the works you read were actually translations from the German of where Buber had, had, had begun to write his material. So and, and, and a lot of people have, have said, well, you know, Buber is, you know, Gershon Shalom, most famously, that Buber over-romanticized and emphasized the aspects of Hasidus that perhaps sounded great for that early 20th century audience. So the Caleb that you were drinking from, it's not like today where you have, you know, translations of Svasemis and Kedusha Slavi and, and other things. You know, Buber was, you know, I'll say it outright, was almost, I, I wouldn't, it's, it's wrong to call it a bastardization, but it was clearly, you know, a romantic intellectual's take on Hasidus, but wasn't really Be'etzim, what we call it sort of was like you know, it was in there somewhere. Yes, I, I agree with you completely. And Gershon Shalom's critique, I think, is a solid critique. But remember, I am also going to Square. So the people that I'm meeting there, primarily two Yin, Avram Khan Spitzer and Ramesh Eisenbach, and the Square Rebbe, the Hantiger Rebbe, uh, who is not yet Rebbe, these were three people who were involved in day-long learning. So I'm reading Buber, but I'm in Ramesh Eisenbach's home for Shabbosim Yom Tovim, and he is using every spare minute. He's hunched over his Gemara, learning Bekoil uh, uh, and Taiching Iber, every line of the Gemara. And um, so I'm seeing the balance is being provided by the actual uh, Torah-saturated lives of these people. So, uh, again, Buba was sort of the Zaltz and Pfeffer, but the lived Yiddishkeit was a very totally immersed one. And would they, you mentioned in one of our previous programs, when we talked about your relationship to the Rachel Srikfer, you mentioned you know, your using of Sansino, but at that point, did you want to become part of a Gemara learning experience as well? Yes, yes. It, it seemed clear to me from whatever I'd read about Judaism at that point that Limerat Torah is a, is a central part of it and that Talmud is a central part of Limerat Torah. So um, my father bought me from my bar mitzvah. Actually, the thing I asked him for was the full 
Sansino Shas. In those days, there was not yet Hebrew English. Let's note this historically. It was all English at that point. I got a full Sansino Shas. And um, a bit later on, when I was going to make the transition to Yeshiva, Tveya sent me to Camp Corina for the summer. We're getting a little bit ahead there, but I want to include the Gemara part here. So uh, I was going to Camp Corina. Camp Corina was going to learn of Metzia and Brachas over the summer, two different Masechtas. Uh, it's a fairly serious learning program. And I told this to the Hantikas Rebbe and the Moshe Eisenbach, who I visited with almost every week. And I said, you know, I can't yet read the Gemara without Nikudas. I can't. I had the Sansino for translation. But the next week I came back, and, and there on the table, I'm almost uh, tearing up thinking about this, there on the table were two volumes, Bava Metzia and Brachas, and and they went out and they bought it for me. So I was now able to really get at it. So they went out of their way to try to find you something that yes. you'd be able to learn on my own. So I would sit with a Gemara without Nakudas and a Sansino and the Gemara with Nakudas and work my way from one to the other until I was able to do it on my own without Nakudas. Wow. Now, did your friend, was your, your friend Paul had dropped off by this time? It's yeah, just you. And you did this even while you were still in public school, right? You were still in public school going day in and day out. I would assume you were already covering your head. No, not allowed to. Oh, so you had to go into public school bareheaded. Yes, and as soon as I emerged from the building, I would put on a yarmulke or a cap. I What I did was that I... To try during eating during lunch, I would put on some sort of cap during lunch. But Mr. Casper, who was a very strict assistant principal there, he did not allow me to wear a head covering in public school. So I did wear tzitzis, but I did not cover my head because Mr. Casper wouldn't allow it. Wow. Uh, imagine, imagine any of that happening uh, in, <laughs> in, in, in today's environment. You know, without being puerile here, it's usually seventh and eighth grade, especially with junior high. This is when uh, boys become interested in girls. Was this a challenge for you? I mean, it's a time when, you know, there's an encouragement almost to write Valentines to each other. How were you able to, how were you able to deal with that in public school? Well, we, we had started actually in sixth grade. We began to have parties in sixth grade and, you know, some girl would bring the record player and they had the 45s and so forth. So it had started in sixth grade and began beginning of seventh. But once I opted into orthodoxy, it was, I knew enough. I had read enough to know that I have to, have to stop doing it. So I, I turned down those invitations in the second half of seventh grade. And it didn't give you a pariah like status, even among your, your friends on the male persuasion. Well, I was, I was a big kid. So it was, I was hard to pick <laughs> on. <laughs> I hear. So, uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. It was just, it was interesting. It was a subject we debated and discussed, but, uh, that was it. So, uh, you were able to get through this eighth grade. I know that, um, you, you, you mentioned, of course, you're, you were still politically aware. Did, did you believe you were going to jettison the literary and political interests that you had as part of your Orthodox life? Or did you even at that time think, that you might be able to pull off some sort of synthesis. It was, it was, um, I went bounce back and forth on this question, but I'd say by and large, I kept the interests up. I do recall one bit of Frumkite that I, uh, endured, which I had somehow seen somewhere. The ultra Orthodox don't like pictures and photographs. 
And I remember going through my uh, Robert Welch's The Life of John Birch and crossing out the pictures that appeared in that volume. But that was, that was a short-lived uh, fit of uh, Extreme Frumkite in which I went after pictures. But otherwise, no, I belonged to the conservative book club and I still read National Review and American Opinion. Now, if you would have asked me how that was going to fit with the um, exclusionist, anti, anti-general knowledge perspective of Square, and I would say at that point, I didn't have it worked out as a philosophy. I just knew that I was concerned about America. I was concerned about general culture. I didn't hate or or look down upon non-Jews. So that was going to have to be a project that I would have to work out. But I was still uh, a Goldwater supporter and still destroyed at the 1964 election. Scavere understood that they, and Stephen Hill, maybe with his understanding of how to produce a uh, program over a number of years, sort of realized this is a project and that, that Craig Schiller uh, is somebody that we can work on and let's take it slow, sort of the same way the uh, Kotzker, of course, was very familiar with the Avni Nezer even before he became his, uh, his son-in-law. The Gudasayzov was a chosid of, of the Kotzker. Gudasayzov asked him, should I introduce him to, you know, to Sifri Machshava, to Chosidus? He says, wait, just fill him, fill him with and Poiskim, fill him through Och, and you'll see when you introduce Chosidus, Kabbalah, He's going to shine like a like a knock, like a giant. Let's do this carefully. This is a project. I'll tell you something that um, everything you said is correct, with the exception of uh, of, of just being Stephen Hill. It was very much those uh, hardcore squares, Rabbi Eisenbach, Rabbi Abraham Spitzer, the Hantiger Square Rebbe. They very much uh, um, gave me a a moderate step by step path. So it was they who uh, found Breuer's for me eventually. We'll get that in a second. But it was they who selected Camp Corina, very, very much so. They they were the moderating force. You know, and, and, and it wasn't like I said that he'll come to us eventually, like I think the Kotzker meant about the Avni Nezer. Mm-hmm. It was like wherever he comes up, but at least this seeker, this this interesting barrier that has somehow dropped in Tarpus Medrash, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to get him into a different mindset a different place and this is why they sent you to this camp and as you finished your 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 eighth grade it was their advice for you to attend a school which it has a very glorious name to it attached to it um yeshiva of shamshin or Hirsch, but is generally known by the community that is really where it's uh, ensconced and that is the brewers uh Yekisha community yes yes they knew my mother wanted to have a, a solid secular education at that point. Beishraga was in Muncie, but it was not yet accredited. Beishraga used to go to Spring Valley High to take old regents. They weren't allowed to take regents in their buildings because they had no lab and no library. Although, again, as I say, with Beishraga in a convoluted way, Beishraga uh, went to Spring Valley High and got the credits through them. But that was not going to satisfy my mother at that point. So Square uh, located Breuer's, and um, they contacted the powers that be in Breuer's, and Square was macabre upon itself to pay Schal Limid. Now, how do I know this? Because Rabbi Avram Chaim Spitzer, who was very involved in this, he himself collected money to pay my Schal Limid, and he also uh, missionized 
a number of Sklerat Talmidim to in their free time collect money. So he would send me every month to Breuer's with a paper bag full of <laughs> cash and coins, which is my scale limit for that month. Wow, wow. I mean, and again, people who have visited the Skverter enclave, we're not talking about Ashir and Muflogim. In other words, these are people who, who are struggling and uh, worked hard to be able to, to put bread on the table. And here they were parceling out some of their hard-earned earnings to this little boy in order for him to go to yeshiva. Wow. Yeah. And not even their yeshiva. And not even their yeshiva. No, nothing to do with their yeshiva. Just so we should be an elechid and be able to learn yeshiva. You know, when we talk about the, your your what was going on there, you mentioned they found nearby. I mean, this was this was a drive even before the imposition of 55 miles per hour or 50 miles per hour in the Palisades, it would still probably a good 45 minutes to, to, till you got there. I mean, this was a, a new experience for someone who was used to walking and skipping to school. Here you were stuffed into a, a station wagon with a bunch of other kids that you yes. didn't even know. What happened was again, Square intervenes here because they find this man who is driving to Broyers every day and they pay him also. He charged the kids. They paid him also, but more than that, I lived in Pomona. I didn't live in Muncie. So somebody from Square would come every day to my house in Pomona, pick me up, and drive me to Muncie. And there I would meet the man who would drive me in. And then on the way home, uh, this man would drop me off in Base Medeshelian, where I was once again to call Square, and someone from Square would come to Base Medeshelian and pick me up. But I was already enough of a Square at that point that before I would call them, I would hop a mikveh there in base Medeshelian because Ooh. I had no mikveh in the morning. So I went to the mikveh, called up Square, and then was taken back home. So when I think back on this, this is only something you can do when you're a teenager. I couldn't imagine that schlepping around today. Wow. And this was, and, and, and even though this was a Yekisha, although let, 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 let's be honest here, although the Yekisha community uh, provides the sort of superstructure, the rabbeim that they had were not were not dyed in the wool yekas, were they? Well, one one exception, which was Rabbi Danzigam, a tenth grade rabbi, he he was a Hershian, but the rest of them were all Tarvadas and Chamblin and all of them, absolutely true, and including you know the including someone that uh, you know who was, who was quite a famous rabbi, right? Was one of your rabbeim, Rabbi Geltzel. Rabbi Geltzel, well, this is Rabbi Yossel Geltzel, and it's not the other, and it's not Rabbi Geltzel from Queens, it's Rabbi Yossel Geltzel. And he, he was a Torah Dastam, they're all Torah, Rabbi Yanka Lipschitz, the father of Penny from Yated fame. These were all Torah Dastam, them, all of them, one by one. Right. So even though technically they were working in this sort of, um, Torah Derech Eretz environment, what you were getting was the pure, uh, the schmaltz of real yeshivish, uh, learning. In that era, Rav Broya had taken Rav Schwab as sort of the assistant Rav of the Kahila by that point. And Rav Schwab certainly played a role in moving Broyers towards a more standard yeshivish position. And um, there was in the air a little bit of a, even a tension in those days between those who wanted to remain within the old Frankfurt Misgeres and those who saw the yeshiva velt as more alluring, but the rabbeim over there in, uh, in 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 that yeshiva where you were were sort of like nudge nudge wink wink in a way in terms of yes. what term derech is, and they weren't you weren't going to join that 
that movement because that movement was not really that strong, even within Breuer's itself, uh, the way, uh, unless you were from the real Alta Yekisha families. It, it, it had no voice except for Abba Danziger. It had no yes. voice in Breuer's except for him. You mentioned in a, in a note to me that one of the, the exciting things there was what I, I sort of call it the roller coaster of a parak, which is uh, the third parak of Ksuvis, which is uh, strap in your seatbelts, <laughs> boys and girls, because you're going on a big ride. And it sounded like that made an impression upon you. Breuer's 1965, that was the Masechta I walked into. So the first Perik and Masechta I ever learned in the yeshiva environment was Elonaris. Mm-hmm. As you say, Elonaris is quite something. And I, I went home every night with you know, the Sancino and the Makudas, and I drove myself crazy every night. And Rabbi Gelsailer gave us a homework assignment every night. We had to prepare Chumash Rashi, one Pasha, and the next day he went around the room calling on us to read. Now, I had a defiant sense of accomplishment and I guess some degree of pride. And I went home every night and I took the Rosemount Silverman Chumash and I memorized how to read all the Rashis from one aliyah to the next. So when he called on me, I wouldn't, uh, I shouldn't mm-hmm. stutter and funfer. So again, it was both were a great challenge. The Elonaris, the Chomashrashi. And if, if there would only have been some kind of English Tosfus, I would have been a lot happier, but uh, that was going to happen not, not for many years. Yeah, that would take 60-some years till, yes. I guess, till yes. Art Scroll is now working on it assiduously. Yes. Now, let's at least try to end today with your uh, your move from uh, Hirsch <laughs> or from Breuer's to your beloved Beishraga, which I know you feel very, very close to. So wh- why was it that you left this term der Heret school for for Beishraga? Was it just proximity reasons or was it uh, uh, was it more Hashkafa or? It, it was an assortment of factors. One, my mother was no longer so steadfast that I had to have an accredited high school to attend. She she caught, sort of sensed where this was all going. That's one. Secondly, I was being neglectful of my secular studies in, in Breuer's. I was never much of a of a math or chemistry guy, so uh, I was starting not to get such good grades in those subjects. So my mother figured, okay, go to a somewhat easier Oh, here. Oh, here. It sounds like one of these uh, one of these Hollywood uh, uh, parents that wanted their kids to get a good SAT grade. In no, other no, words. no, no. It was much. It was much more like I can't fight you anymore. You go to this other place, and it'll it'll work out somehow. That that was two, and then three. Of course, I was always trying to drive the ball down the field and wind up in square at the end. So to me, uh, Beishaga was a step on the way to square. You know, this is really the sort of the anomaly of Tervedas. We talk about Tervedas being, you know, real yeshivish, but in a way, Tervedas always had a a strand of I don't know if you call it neo Hasidus or real Hasidus. It sort of was an interesting, an interesting mix of yes. of you know they daven again. Part of it is that they daven so smart, which again, it, which I think is just an indicator that. Yes, this is a yeshivish place. Litvish alumnus is going to be here. We have Rebelia Chazan. I mean, you can't get a greater Litvish alumnus than Rebelia Chazan. But, but still, there's something about uh, Tervedas that has a a chesidisha wilt to it. A, a, yeah, it's 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 not it's not vice but it clearly is uh, a move towards 
you know, the Boshemtov's view of, of, of what Taira and, and Avoida should be. Reb Shragafaival gave Shurim in Chasidish Svarim. He, he sent, although he later regretted it, some of his best Talmidim to learn by the Malach in the Bronx, to learn Chasidish sure. in the Bronx by the Malach, which has sort of enigmatic results. But, uh, there was certainly always in Beshagam when I was there. Rav Shmuel Mendelitz, who was Rav Shagafavl's son, he would give a shear before davening in Chassid this Shabbos morning. And when Rav Shmuel Favelson came there and um, wanted to change the Zman of davening, because the Beshagah Zman of davening was either 8.30 or maybe it was even 9 o'clock at some point, that was because there used to be a shear in Chassidus which Rav Shmuel Mendelitz would give. So Rav, Rav Favelson objected and wanted to move it to Zman Krishma Shazmanius. So they made a bargain with him that if he would wear a gatel, they would move the time of davening. So as long as he was a Beshaga, and Shul Favelson wore a gatel, although he did have sort of a legalistic loophole, he wore it under his frock. So, uh, so at this point, you know, you said you were a big guy, you know, you were no longer Craig anymore. You were Meyer no, at this point. Right. Yep. Now nobody knew you as Craig. You were Meyer. You were, and did you start, um, not shaving? Did you did you let your payas grow? But Baruch Hashem, I, I never shaved and I never cut my payas. So, uh, although the results have been meager, but uh, I, uh, I Baruch Hashem never shaved because by the time I became from, I had not shaved and uh, I adopted the Hasidic approach of never shaving, so I never never did. So I had, I, I had a bit of a bit of peach fuzz at that point. So a razor has never touched your face ever. Wow. Even in terms of grooming, you've never, like, you never, you've never, uh, you've never, you've never, like, guided, you know, sort of, like, shaped your, shaped yourself at all. You've no, never... the, the more, the more hardcore Hasidim don't, don't trim the mustache either, although there is more of a hat to an Allah, but that's of course, sure. Don't do that, so I never, I never did that either. Wow. Just to end off here, so this, this 11th and 12th grade, which, and you mentioned, of course, that Revivalism was the more, I guess, the more Litvak of the, uh, oh, yes. uh of, of oh, the crew. Yes. Oh yes. But by that time, by the time you were, let's say, a, a high school graduate, uh, there was no question about it that you were you were more chassidish than even the, the the kids probably who were part of Beishraga, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. No, I never graduated high school, by the way, because I leave Beishraga uh, midway through twelfth grade, so I never never graduated. But so um, you've never you've never gotten your high school diploma? No, no. You're still able still able to get a job. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. By the way, today, I don't think I would have gotten the job that I got in Yeshiva High School of Queens, but we'll get to that soon. But anyway, so what you say, as far as my name goes, I did bring to Beishraga my Jastro, you know, the two-volume green, green sure. lines of Jastro. And um, I used them pretty extensively. And in that, I had yet written my name as Craig Schiller. So it was a source of much mirth amongst the <laughs> Beishraga boys that they knew my other first name. Well, look, I, I think we've... Uh... I didn't think we were going to be able to cover in this period 14 years till your, till your book. But I think, you know, we, we, we took you through the, what for most people consider the most crucial part of their life in many ways. They're the early adolescence finding themselves. I think as so many authors and people have go back. I know I myself many times still dream about that period and people who are long dead come back to me in many ways. Uh, in the in the form that I remember them, I think we've 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 got to the jugular in a way of your development, and I think this might be a good, good place to say uh, perhaps uh, we have the part three to come. 
Very good. All right. So we will we will be back again with Brochus and and and, and Tfilis, of course, uh for the Matzin of Achenikov Basic Israel and the Chaylin particularly. So we'll see you Ritzashem next week with more Mayor and Echachov and take care everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.